0: Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed in the game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell. And is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no. Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we stop in our tracks for this conversation with a black man, a man who has been in my life for over 20 years and impacted it in ways that continue to unfold. Steve Anderson was born in Louisville, Kentucky in the 60s which is considered one of the most dangerous cities on earth. When his dad was shot by his supposed friend when he was nine years old, anger smoldered within him. How could my mom not press charges? How could the man shot in the mouth live and my dad shot in the leg die? So many inbuilt experiences of growing up black permeated his body before he moved to LA to start his life on his own at 21, but quickly he began his decade-long navigation of the globe, starting in none other than Switzerland. Picked up by two budding beach volleyballers from Australia, he would move to Perth to execute the dream of winning Olympic medals, which he did with a bronze in 96 and a gold in 2000 with Nat Cook and Carrie Potterst. Marrying his Swiss Aussie wife in 2000, he remained Nat's coach for 16 years. During that time, he would head up coaching programs in Bali and Vanuatu and leave legacies for athletes and organizations in those countries over the next 10 years. My Canadian beach team would rise to our best ever world finish of seventh place under his guidance. And the things I learned with this man can only be described as Zen tutelage. Steve became instrumental in my life for being able to ask and express things that sometimes it felt like there was no one else to really be comfortable asking. My mom married my black dad in 1973 when interracial marriage was only legalized in the US in 67, that's six years prior. And many family members refused to come to that wedding. My mom and dad hailed from one of the most racially charged cities in Canada. Being on the Atlantic coast where many slave boats dropped off cargo and I say it like that because that's how it was back then. That's how it was viewed in the 1800s. But we're heading down to US cities where we hear a lot more about slavery. There was, there's even a city in Atlantic Canada called Africville because of its dense population of Blacks. My name of Maxwell, so Sarah Maxwell is actually Scottish, but I'm not Scottish because my great, great, great grandfather was a cook him and his twin brother were cooks on a ship where every black took the name maxwell get that that's weird that just that's just, i don't even know where to place that so back to steve in 2013 steve left to head up the whole of team canada beach volleyball with his now five-year-old son and soon-to-be wife alicia he would lead the country to number one in the world within a short two-year period recently he asked He was asked by his suburb aptly named The Beaches in Toronto to give the speech for their Black Lives Matter March. I've asked him if he'd be willing to share that with us all today before we begin to open up this dialogue, which I'm calling the uncomfortable conversations with a Black global citizen. So, Steve, thank you for being here and being willing to read this and share this with our community.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's, It's thick already. it's very thick already. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: thank you for for having me here and thank you for the privilege of reading this. This took me a long time to to be able to voice. Not a long time to write, but a long time to say. Mm. So thank you for, for creating this. You know, my personal mission is to create a world of love, peace, and prosperity by sharing my truths, my vulnerability, and my gifts. But I haven't been living up to my mission. I've been focused on trying to provide for my family and make sure that we're protected. But in my heart of hearts, I know that no matter what I do, because of the color of my skin, we are not protected. Every time I'm driving down the street and a police officer pulls up behind me, I expect to be pulled over. My son, who's been called the n-word just down the street from here, already knows that people he has never met will judge him because of the color of his skin. Even though we live here in Canada, I still have to have the conversation that every Black parent dreads having with their child and tell him how dangerous it is to be a Black person in this world. I've been quiet for too long, hoping that we'll figure it out and our day will come, but that day is not coming by itself. We have to step up, put in the work and speak out. So I wrote this, because I didn't want to get caught up in my emotions and miss something that I thought was important to say. <clears throat> um, in 1883, Emma Lazarus said, until we are free, we are none of us free. And in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, no one of us free until we're all free. And today, in 2020, We're still having the same conversation. None of us are free until we're all free. We're not free from the hate of racism. We're not free from the shame of racism, master and slave alike. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1964. I grew up in Kentucky, and I know racism well. America's on fire right now, but it's not just America who hates and feels shame, we all recognize this pain. According to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Black people in Toronto are 20 times more likely to be shot by police than white people. That's here in Canada. Racism lives all over the world, and it's moved from our systems into our subconscious. We have to acknowledge it and resolve it so that we can move forward. I wanna say that again. We have to acknowledge it and resolve it so that we can move forward. Is there one person here today that can honestly say that you don't have secret thoughts of hate, fear, or superiority over another group of people based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, Their weight, their education, religion, or some other characteristic that makes them different from you. I can't say it. The hate, fear, and shame is killing us. It's killing us all. So thank you for being here and being part of this Black conversation. Not because you understand and empathize with Black people, but because you can't tolerate a world where Black lives don't matter. Some of you might think that this should be an all life matters conversation. And you won't understand why your black friend gets angry with you or even calls you a racist for changing the conversation. They're angry because it disrespects and diminishes black people in this specific black conversation to shift the focus to something more palatable or relatable and away from the raw and the brutal truth. Black men, women, and children are being murdered by police and other people because of the color of their skin and because of systematic racism and not being valued as human beings. Racism can never be changed if we never address it directly. So the next time that you're tempted to shift the conversation to all lives matters or doesn't my life matter too, pause. This time the conversation is about black people. Next time, it could be about you, about women, about children, indigenous people, brown people, Asian people, white people, sexual orientation, religion, the planet, animals, wherever you feel your pain. Everyone will get the opportunity to be the target of fear, ignorance, and hate. Everyone has had the opportunity to be the target of fear, ignorance, and hate. Some more than others, but everyone's time has come and it will come again. And when your time comes, Black people will be ready to stand with you, to honor your conversation, to respect that we don't know what it must be like for you, but we refuse to live in a world that uses hate, fear, ignorance, and violence to oppress you. We're not free until all of us are free. Use your voice, your vote, and your dollars. Stand up against hate, fear, and inequality, oppression, and injustice. Let's stand together and abolish all forms of slavery and injustice. Racial injustice, educational injustice, economic injustice, social injustice, all forms of injustice. And as Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat everywhere.
0: Mm.
1: We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Thank you, and God bless. Thank
0: you, Steve, for that. Um. I don't know how other people feel. I don't, sometimes you don't understand your emotion, you know. You just, you just got it. It's just happening. So thank you for that. Um, I feel like it's been a long time coming to be having this conversation. And I heard something that I just want to address that beautiful thing that you said about trying to shift the conversation when it's about Black Lives Matter. That's the conversation we're in right now. That's right. And I heard something really beautiful because we are in a time of COVID-19 as well. And because we are now focused on COVID-19 because it's the current threat that we are experiencing on the globe, it doesn't mean that cancer isn't huge. It doesn't mean that other kinds of viruses are killing people. It doesn't mean that. It just means that right here, right now, this is the imminent conversation.
1: That's right.
0: And I I really thought that that could really help people with this to like navigate what you just said um, in a way that everybody kind of gets that we're in the COVID-19 conversation and and we're not really trying to shift that one. We get that that one actually, and I really believe that one injustice being unwound will actually begin to pull away at a lot of the others so thank you steve um i'd love to ask you questions that it was funny i was of two minds right because i'm like i hear this all the time and and i want to just ask questions for the things that i hear in the world so i just want to acknowledge mm. the privilege of looking the way that i do so even though i have two kinds of blood in my body i look really white if anything i look really tanned and i get that every day why are you so tan so I have, you know, an experience of explaining why I'm tan, but ultimately I don't experience what you do, Steve. And I've learned so much from you being open to sharing that with me. Um, I've I've heard it expressed that, you know, and this I could actually relate to, and so I'm gonna say it here for others, is that it's like the experience of being molested, and that has an impact. Any child or person who's ever had any kind of molestation knows that the moment that it happens, there's an impact. But then when mm-hmm. you go to tell someone, and they don't mm-hmm. believe you,
1: yeah. it's
0: like revict like it's like it's happening yeah. all over again, you know. Yeah, right. And it's like to see white people and black people and Mexican people and Asian people, everybody like marching together. It's like people actually believing you. Like you go to your yeah. mom and. Your mom saying, you know, all those years ago when you told me, like now I believe you, yeah. and so I just want to, you know, share that with you and and try to have people kind of grasp things from their level, but in in the same way I want to clarify my own privilege and my own constant look at where am I making generalized opinions about people without knowing them. Like for me, that's where I really realize. The moment I know someone or I know, like I have understanding and I'm in there, everything Mm. changes. But I too have things come up for me in so many different ways, whether it's race and thank you for addressing so many different um, categories of people. Like there's ironies to the fact that I'm married to a woman because Mm. I had plenty of thoughts about women with women in the past. And now I just laugh, I'm like, oh my gosh, why do people keep telling about me about their gay friends? Yeah. I, I was like, why are they telling me that? And then I go, oh my God, they think I'm that. Because I'm married to a woman for 20 years. So anyway, all that to say, I'm not shifting that conversation. It's just use your own experiences to just for a moment begin to step into what Steve's here to share. So Steve, we just got to cover off um, a couple things right now if you're, if you're cool with it. Um, what issue of humanity is at play right now? Like, you know, when you say we aren't free until everyone is free, what yeah. do you really think the issue is for humanity right now?
1: This is such a moment of opportunity, like I haven't experienced before. Um, so, I mean, the first time I heard Black Lives Matters as a conversation, you you heard it dismissed as, well, doesn't you know all lives matter? What do we? Why just Black lives? What about me and what about these people? And That's not what I'm hearing now. What I'm hearing now is people who are not of color saying, I refuse to live in a world where Black lives don't matter. I'm trying to shift the conversation. And if you look, when I was looking at the rallies and my wife and I were were watching it on television from Canada and we're like, aren't there a lot of white people out there in these protests? Like, yeah, there's a lot of white people. And I'm, it, it boggled my mind for a little bit, because I'm like, this is not what I'm used to seeing. And these people are angry, and it looks personal. And it's not because they're Black or they're trying to empathize with the Black experience. It, look, it looks to me like they're saying, no, this is systemic. I recognize this. I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. I don't, I'm not leaving this world for my kids. It's not the world I want to live in. This is not the world that I want to build for my kids. Black lives do matter. I'm not Black, but I'm here to say Black lives matter. I'm not living in a world where it doesn't. And change needs to happen. Mm -hmm. We're right on the cusp of change. Um, Now, the question is, how do we actually get that change to happen? How do we actually get, you know, how do we team up and use our power to get change? And this is where privilege comes back in it for me. You change from usually from a place of privilege. You have a vote, not every place on the planet recognizes voting. So if you live in a place where you can vote and you actually have a say, that's privilege and power. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I grew up in America. I have privilege because of the place that I grew up. I have privilege because I'm a man. And men get certain privileges. I have privilege because I have running water in my house. And when I was in Vanuatu, they didn't have electricity or running water in their house, even though they had a five-star hotel down the room. There's privileges that we all enjoy, and we all have the opportunity to influence our environment and our outcomes if we step into that privilege powerfully. And but you heard a lot of
0: Steve, would you say that this conversation, I just want to make sure everyone's woken up because this is being recorded from my end from Australia, you're in Canada. Does this Black Lives Matter conversation of what we're talking about involve more than just the US?
1: Yeah, this is the paradox of this whole situation and the conversation. The conversation right now today is Black Lives Matters. Now, if you're a Black person, you're inside the conversation because you're the one at risk. This, this directly involves you. If you're not a person of color, you're in the conversation because are you gonna live in a world where black lives don't matter? You're not removed from the conversation. You just have a different place in the conversation. Okay. And you hear people talk about allies and all this sort of stuff. And when you look it up in the dictionary, it's accurate. But I much prefer that we're all human family. We're not the same. We need to celebrate our uniqueness. And our differences, and educate each other on our uniquenesses and our differences, and celebrate each other instead of being afraid of each other because of our differences. And when we can celebrate each other, then we we won't be afraid of of um, this person looks different than me, or this person thinks different than me. We'll we'll actually learn from it and grow. And, and even if we don't agree, we'll expand our own perspective. That's a way more powerful world to live in than. I can't stand next to you because I'm afraid you're going to take something from me. I'm in competition with you. So, yeah, this is a global conversation. And when you look at there are places that don't have any black uh, history of slavery or colonial colonialism, that have racism against black people. Which right. Is okay. really like, what
0: would what would some of my our white friends? Because what would some of our white friends be surprised to know? that happens to you on a regular basis in Toronto, living in Brisbane, Australia, growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, staying in five-star hotels in the mountains of Switzerland, trying to get to your posh hotel in Rio de Janeiro, wondering why the (laughs) Japanese were staring at you in Tokyo or the Chinese in Shanghai. Like, What are some of the varying experiences that you've had of being, we're calling you a global black man,
1: Global black. It's interesting because you, you brought up the stat, you know, only 15% of Americans have passports. And my question is, well, how many of those are black people? <laughs>
0: yeah, and we got to get that stat because I can't, yeah. I'm going to get that. So keep, yeah, yeah, talk to us about it.
1: I've been, I've been so fortunate to travel the world and you know, the world tour and how many countries that you go to. And, and uh, it's, it was really interesting for me. Um, This would have been in the late 80s, maybe, early 90s, late 80s. Or or sorry, late 80s, early 90s. Um, We're staying in Brazil, and I love Brazil. And I really had to get clear on Brazil, uh, being a Black man in Brazil. Because there is some serious treatment, people of color, in Brazil when I was there in the 80s and 90s. And I've been back since it's shifted. I was a tourist, <laughs> you know. so I don't know how much it shifted. I'm going to tell you my story. We'll see how much it shifted, but it was really interesting, and a friend of mine put it in perspective to me as a Brazilian, but my story is that, you know, I'm traveling the world with with beach volleyball. I was coaching, uh, you know, Natalie Cook and Carrie Potharse. We're in Brazil, and we used to go to Brazil maybe three or four times a year when, when they were having that many tournaments. And... As part of the tour, you stay at four and five star hotels and usually close to the beach where you're going to be you know, playing. So I'm staying at four or five star hotel and we're going out to practice and we're going out in our shorts and, you know, it's hot. The girls come back they're in their bikinis or shorts. When I come back, I'm in my shorts and a T-shirt. I'm covered. you know, it's insane. Every day I got stopped by the security. Trying to speak Portuguese to me. You know, to see if I'm a local. I'm like, you had this conversation yesterday. I'm a I'm a, a I'm staying here. Here's my key. I'm American, I'm not even Brazilian, man. What are you doing? It was really interesting to me. And so I, I thought, oh, Brazil is so racist. This was my opinion. Mm-hmm. And talking to a Brazilian, um, it was really interesting how they put it in perspective to me. It's it was about class. Now, race was a part of it. Because if you look at the Dutch lineage and how um, Brazil was, uh, was formed, you, you, you had white people who were in the plantations inside celebrating. You had the black people who were from slave lineage celebrating carnival, and they all came out and mixed, they came out of the, the plantations and started to mix together. And Brazilians consider themselves to be Brazilian. But if you come from, if you're dark skinned, you're assumed to have come from slave lineage from poverty, no education. So the color of your skin is some indicator of your status in life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And on the flip side of it, the lighter you are, blue eyes, blonde hair, the more you have you know, towards your Dutch lineage or whatever mm-hmm. other white lineage there was in Portuguese, whatever was going on in Brazil. And so that's, that's shifted the conversation for me from the slave conversation I knew in America, where it was just straight up, you black, you not, you not worthy.
0: <laughs> okay, I have a question in here. I, I was going to ask it in a different way, but this is directly happened to me weeks ago. Mm. My Brazilian friend says to me, why do you always talk about color, Sarah? I don't see mm-hmm. color. I, I'm from Brazil. I don't see color. And I don't know why that evoked this thing that I hear a lot when people tell me they're colorblind. Right. Like that are not Brazilian. Okay. But this came up recently. Right. Where this very fair Brazilian with curly blonde hair told me that they don't see color. I've never actually had a dark skinned Brazilian ever say that to me, ironically. So Steve, talk to me about colorblind. Why do you, why does it irritate me? I don't, I don't even know why it bugs me.
1: Yeah. All hell. First of all, because (sighs) yeah. First of all, because I doubt it's true. <laughs> yeah. Like even even within I, our color, we're not colorblind.
0: Exactly. Look at me.
1: Whether you're white, and black, you. or whatever. Exactly. So if you're white, you're looking. Well, do you have dark hair or blonde hair? You know, light hair. Do you have light eyes? Dark. Even within a black, say, you? What you? You have good hair. You have light. Even within our own race and color, we're not colorblind. So the so thinking that you're colorblind to another race. I'm not going to say it's impossible, I'm going to say probably not likely, (laughs) probably not likely. But and I tell I had a story for this and it was really interesting. Um, When I was a kid, I was probably 18 years old, yeah 17, 18 years old, and I played volleyball in Kentucky and I played in the white league and oftentimes I was the only only black guy in the gym, uh, I was the only black guy on my team for a long time, then other black men started to play in those leagues in the white neighborhoods one year we went to the home of the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan uh, in Kentucky, and there was a tournament there. And I want to go play. I'm going to play with my team. I'm not going to be stopped. Um, and I'm young and crazy, right? And we had to drive there. And was I lived in Louisville. This was a far. I can't remember the name of the place, but the last two. And this is back again in the, in the would have been in the 80s. Um, the last two Grand Dragons of the Ku Klux Klan had come from this place. <laughs> And they had run all the Black people out. And here I was going to go play volleyball in this town. And so we're driving there. And, I'm, and we're in a packed car that was you know, six of us in the car. And a really good friend of mine and mentor, Jack Gallagher, was, was driving. Um, and nothing but love for him and nothing but love for me. He was, was a great mentor for me. And we're driving, and the race conversation is happening. And Jack, you know, is Marine, ex-Marine, is just like, Steve, man, we got your back. You know, we love you. We don't see color. And, you know, you're just, you're just our brother. And, you know, and we got your back. If anything happens, you can keep, we're going to be right there in front of you and everything. You know, your, your, your color doesn't matter to us. And I'm sitting in the back at this time, and I'm thinking, because Jack's driving, I'm like, I believe you. And I, and I said it. I'm like, Jack, you know, I believe you. I, I know that you see me as Steve, and I know that color is not an issue for you on an everyday basis, but if I was dating your daughter, would I still be Steve, or would I be Steve, the Black guy, dating your daughter? Mm. And he got quiet, and he answered in a very humble voice. He goes, yeah, you're right. It For whatever reasons, fear of how you'd be treated or whatever, you'd, you'd be Steve, the black guy dating my daughter.
0: Hmm.
1: I was like, yeah, you know, I know you love me, man. I know you jump in front of a bullet and all that sort of, I get all that. But you can't say that race doesn't matter. It does matter. We got to stop trying to be gray and pretending like race doesn't matter. Like God made a mistake. God did not make a mistake. Hmm. The human race is all sorts of shades, all sorts of culture, all sorts of language. We're that way. It's not a mistake. If we can just celebrate each other, mm. and instead of trying to, um, you know, change each other or say that we're all the same, we're not all the same. Let's let's learn from each other. Let's celebrate each other, mm. and together, then we might get somewhere. But as, as long as we keep trying to avoid this conversation and say things like race doesn't matter. I understand that you don't think of yourself as a racist. I understand that you don't judge that person based on their race that you're aware of. I understand all that, but race does matter. And if we celebrate it, it can become an empowering thing instead of a disempowering thing.
0: Did it, did it like negate you in some way? Like your experience of life when he was see, like, oh, you're just Steve, you're just Steve. Like, does it negate like the 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 unique differences that are your, ex- you have different experiences of the exact same places I was there with you. You and I yeah. have different experiences because of how you yeah. look and how I look. So yeah, is that it? Like I'm trying, I actually, there was something in that that I was like, wow, okay, that's that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I didn't process it as, as being negated. And, and one of the reasons why I grew up in Kentucky, I had, you know, I'm part redneck, which <laughs> No, till I moved to LA, you know, and and what I mean by that is I moved out to LA, now I was used to the Ku Klux Klan marching down Dixie Highway every year on Martin Luther King's birthday to protest Martin Luther King's birthday. This was my norm growing up in Kentucky in the 70s and 80s. And so when I moved to LA, Martin Luther King's birthday, I'm like, well, where's the Klan marching? You know, (laughs) because in Kentucky, sometimes we go out and and look at it and you can almost to like have popcorn. We didn't, but it was like watching a spectacle. Yeah. Okay. yeah because it, it was just so normalized as part of our life experience. And when I got to LA and I'm like, well, where's the Klan? They looked at me like, what's wrong with you? Boy, ain't nobody the Klan <laughs> would try to march down the street here in LA. They get lit up. And I was like, that's such a redneck, normal, mm-hmm. like normality, normal, you know, way of looking at life look, look at what my subconscious is from growing up in this, what I accept as normal. Mm-hmm. And this, but and I didn't realize before, but racism and discrimination could be subconscious as, as much as conscious. And that's where it really gets us is our subconscious biases and how we, you know, people because of their weight their or sexual orientation our gender, mm-hmm. you know, where they come from, their education. It's all these subconscious things that we use to judge and categorize people and make ourselves superior or, or not. And the last piece to that is, you know, I said before, the shame belongs to the master as much as the slave. Mm. And there's a lot of shame, and there's a lot of shame with white people who are experiencing the privilege of their forefathers, you know, and I think it takes a lot of courage to stand up right now. If you're a white person, especially, white male, especially to say, I know I'm in a position of privilege, and I choose not to exert it in a way where it disadvantages other people. I want a fair, just world, even though i'm benefiting from it. Um, Can I
0: speak to that this, a little bit for a second? Yeah. I heard someone say what you just said about shame don't like you there's a choice to embody the ancestry that did something wrong like you embody the shame and like that interest but what about the part of your history that was an abolitionist you know Mm. and you can find them they were there somewhere in your lineage Um, and i think no matter where you live like embody that person instead of because they're both present but i think the shame comes from i can't change it it happened you know that's shame from a past that isn't really taking any actions into the future, but an abolitionist, the kind of person, you know, the kind of people that helped with the Underground Railroad or the kind Mm -hmm. of people who were in Germany and helping Jewish people, like different experiences. These are the abolitionists of your time. We all have that in our blood too.
1: Well, and the really interesting part is how you can be the abolitionist now. So let's say, you know, you change your family tree. Because let's say that, all of your education and life experience up until this point included racism, you know, classism, all the isms, right? And, and you, you consciously know that you benefit from it. And whether, maybe you are ashamed and maybe you're not ashamed, maybe you're just enjoying the benefits of it. But being able to, again, recognize this is my privilege, just like I have the privilege of running water in my home and not everybody has that privilege, just recognizing this is my privilege. And then having the courage to say, I'm not going to use this privilege in a way that's gonna disadvantage someone else or is going to harm someone else. I draw the line today, the way white people are drawing the line right now, black people, everybody's drawing the line right now saying, I will not live in this world where these other brothers and sisters of mine, my cousins are being treated this way. I won't live in that world. I won't use my privilege to keep perpetuating this world. I won't use my silence to keep perpetuating this world. I'm gonna speak up and take action. So I think that's the real opportunity. And, and the flip side of it is as, as black people, in black Americans, I think we have a very unique situation. it may be this way other places, but I grew up in, in America. And one thing I came to realize is I'm both slave and slave master because I don't know black people who have any sort of long-term history lineage in the states who don't have some sort of white blood in them. Mm. And my grandmother was was Irish and Cherokee Indian. My grandfather's father was a slave owner. Mm. That's where my name Anderson comes from. Mm. But he didn't claim him as his son, even though he educated him, because he wouldn't have anyone with his blood who was uneducated, but never claimed him as a son. I don't know any of the white people in my family because there's no connection. But that's there. In my DNA is the DNA of the master and the DNA of the slave. Now, grow up in that situation where the arrogance of the master and the shame and being beaten down of the slave coming together. And I think that's the, the strength and the power and the uniqueness you see in a lot of Black Americans is we got this, you know, and, and today, like I come from, I'm born in the 60s, I come from a different space. Young people now, Black people can own their Blackness. You see them in the corporate world, tattoos, hair, the whole thing, earrings, whatever. When I was growing up, it was a hard decision that people thought, Black people thought, and I thought this myself, Do I have to try to emulate a white male to make it in corporate America? Is there a glass ceiling on me if I show my ethnicity? And can I be my authentic self and and have wealth and, and, and status and achievement in this place? Or do I have to model something that isn't me? And I think, like I said, young people can show up their authentic self now and be accepted in the business world based on what they can produce Mm. before there are all sorts of glass ceilings i don't care how good you were, because of the color of your skin or because of the way you spoke or your education or how you looked you weren't going to rise above it you just Mm -hmm. were not welcome into the club so it's a very unique situation and i think the shame lives on both sides being the survivor of that treatment you know and, and and being here and having to look your women and your children and the black man look them in the eye and as as the survivor of this system that's still oppressing there's a shame that goes with that
0: absolutely and i want to ask you like they're not surf they're, These are not surface level questions but i want to give people just a little access to things that come up for people a lot and it's mm. do you should people be saying black or African American? So firstly, people get really tied up when they don't know what to say to me because they're right. like, oh, she's Canadian, <laughs> African American? What? Yeah. So, and you're, you know, you're married to a, a Jamaican woman. So talk to me yes. a little bit about black or African American.
1: Right. So my personal opinion mm-hmm. is it depends on your era. Okay. I come from the I'm black and I'm proud era. So I say black. When African-American came about, I was like, you know, that's, that's more politically correct. And that, that's a more, I don't know if it's a more accurate term. I don't know that all black people come, you know, everybody comes from Africa, but some people would identify as coming from West, the West Indies and what's going on. I don't know. So I I personally um, say black have mm-hmm. used african-american um it, it's but i think depending on your you know people of color i think depending on your your era you know like wh- whatever your heritage is if you tell me what your heritage is then i'm gonna that's what i'm gonna say to you and if you say that it's pronounced this way and not that way then that's the way i'm gonna pronounce it for you so I think it's a really difficult situation. I don't think there's one term that's going to cover uh
0: and That'll free people up around the wording. But, you know, in Australia at the moment, um, Aboriginal people have claimed First Nations, you know, as a name. Mm. And I know that they're all, there's also a real um, connection to Black Lives Matter. And so they consider themselves Black and that Black Lives Matter and right. and just as a little aside not to shift the conversation but every aussie should watch the movie american dream mm. you want a, a little bit of a status check on what's going on in the country um from a different perspective it was a really powerful very emotional movie true story um, an autobiography of a um infamous athlete here in australia but again around this word black so thank you for kind of that that description of your experience of it so talk to me a little bit about the n-word okay so this mm. is where nat gets really like um not just nat you know she asks me all the time i don't understand why can black people say the n-word and i i think i've heard it the most in australia and i just i can't even breathe right because in my yeah. me it's like oh that can't pass over your lips. I've never—it's never passed over mine. How could they just say it so easily? Um, talk to me a little bit about the N word and why um, Blacks have reclaimed it.
1: Wow, you know, I, I'm this one. I'm I'm starting to revisit because, you know, I, I totally get that. and I've used the word and variations of it with an A on the end, all that kind of stuff. Um and I'm revisiting this one. I really am. I really am. Because I, this is, this is what we did. We used to have a record, my nephew and I owned the record label. It's called um, Epod Records, which is dope spelled backwards. Mm-hmm. We did that for a reason, we did it because we wanted to take something that's used to disempower people and the, the lifestyle, the attraction of it. We said, okay, we'll get that lifestyle and attraction, but do it in a way that empowers your life instead of sending you to prison or kills you early. So we flipped it and our symbol was the Confederate flag in every color, except for its true colors. Hmm. And our motto was the South, you know, they say the South should rise again. We said the South has risen it just has a different color face. Hmm. So that was us trying to reclaim these negative um, images and, and brands and, and try to empower them by flipping them. The way we flipped religion, and you know all these things that are meant to empower people, and have been used to cause war and everything else. Um, that was our. That was my mentality for a long time, and now it goes back to black, where black is a man-made construct. You know, black was a was a um, a construct that was created to help um, the Spanish figure out who they should be killing who weren't Christians. <laughs> you go do some research on where black comes from. You couldn't. You couldn't use ethnicity, which is different from race, um, to distinguish people. What they really, What's a Muslim look like? Mm-hmm. What's a Christian look like? What color are they? What language do they speak? So you can't really justify killing all Muslims based on their color or whatever. Um, you can't even identify them that way. What do Jewish people, Black Jewish people, what do Jewish people look like? You can't identify them that way. So what race? Classifying someone as black, classifying someone as white, you can you can class you can you can see that. Mm-hmm. And so, it's really interesting um, because I grew up in America, and I grew up at a time where you know I'm black and I'm proud. Black is something that I embrace. Um, I don't know if that's right or not, but it's something that I embrace, and I embrace it because it's like the phoenix rising up and everything that black people have been through in america you are black man strong and black woman strong if you can stand up today love yourself aspire to something and make a contribution to the world that's black man and black woman strong so what do you say
0: to kingston your son when somebody calls him the n-word though like how did you like you said i know for you it's transitioning here but what did What was that conversation like when he came home?
1: My son's a very emotional, beautiful young man. Um, Angry. You know, just just born angry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that fire in his belly that makes him want to go out and do something, which I really appreciate. I don't want to take it away from him. Um, And, you know, really there is nothing. I, I said a bunch of stuff and there's nothing, there is nothing you can say to a child, when someone has used something that, that is them, like you're not going to change this, the color of your skin. I mean, there's products to try to do that and everything else, but this, you identify, identify, this is my brown skin. And for someone to use a term like that, that's only for people with brown skin. Now it starts this conversation in your head. What what are they saying to me? Are they saying that I have no value? You talked about cargo before. Are they saying that I'm not worthy, worthy of love, worthy of of being seen, being heard? What, What are they saying that's unique to me? And as a kid trying to figure that out, I mean, that's not a conversation for a kid to have on their own at night in their own bed when they're trying to figure out their own self-worth and everything else. So I said lots to him and, you know, one of the things that, that sticks out to me is, you know, the challenges make the champion. And I try to talk to him in a way where he can see it as an opportunity to be empowered and give people their own hate let them have their own hate Um, and i try to be rational which which is stupid and doesn't make any sense and say you know things like you know we all have prejudices and all this sort of stuff and biases and you know i'm biased against this and you might have a bias and it's just our ignorance all this stuff what does it mean to a kid doesn't mean anything to a kid I don't know how it's gonna affect him. He may never consciously know how it's gonna affect him. All I know is that it happened and now it's part of his life.
0: And I'm just gonna go out on a limb for the kid who says it. People do a lot, they, they catch a lot more than they're taught. So when mm-hmm. you're talking about responsibility, like taking responsibility for who us, I think part of that is that kid isn't fully responsible around that comment. Like people are making racial slurs all the time. Like kids throw things at other kids, different ones. You know, in Australia, there's lots of Italian slurs being made or Mm. Asian slurs being Mm -hmm. made. And I would just say that's part of this whole systemic not taking responsibility thing. And then the kid comes out with it. Right. And I would actually say that's just another version of not being responsible, meaning that kid doesn't even, yeah, there's no kind of understanding. There's no relationship to it, I would say. They really don't get it fully.
1: Yeah, Um, and the whole conversation is a paradox in that, I mean, you can't say to someone because of the color of your skin, you can't say that. I can say it. I can say it in your presence, but you cannot. I can even call you the word, but you can't call me back. Yeah. So that, that doesn't make any sense.
0: That's confu- That that's hard for people. I real I will say that for all like Oprah is really big. She's not happy about this. I know she mm. speaks really openly. It's really confusing for people. Um, I've never done it, but imagine me. That would look really mm. dicey, wouldn't it? You know. <laughs> so so um, I just won't for my own self. But look, I just think uh, when people are especially now when people are trying to understand things that does confuse it because I look I don't think we've given a definitive answer all to say that um, let's just say everybody's a little bit working on this one
1: yeah Um,
0: so talk to me about protesting like most people go I can understand protesting but why rioting
1: oh okay I love this one I'm gonna talk about but before we go there I just see with the n-word yeah. I'd like to see the the version with the A- ER used when it's appropriate, and so it's it's used appropriately to people who are violent roguish have with not, nothing to do with skin color so I think what's happened it's been it's been taken out of uh, the context of of its true meaning and been given to black people, and it's not in common use. For people who deserve the term. <laughs> so if it was removed, if race was removed from the term and it was reassigned to the dictionary as its true meaning, then there'd be people all over the world of many different races where that term would fit and it would have nothing to do with race. So I think the fact that it's associated with with having you know brown skin or being having black blood, you know, uh, we 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 keep it. As this taboo thing, you know. So, but if we give it back to what it was, and and stop claiming it, it would be really interesting. It would be really interesting, and it wouldn't. I wouldn't take it personally, because it would have nothing to do with me. Yeah. So oh. that's that's just something interesting I like to like to see. If if it's going to be used, then use it pro- properly and take the color out of it because there's nothing to do with color.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah and and by the way if people are like stop interrupting him I want to hear about him because I can I know my mom might be thinking that but <laughs> I'll tell you I'm trying to get a lot in in a short amount of time yeah. Yeah. so protesting yes why rioting and why yeah. would blacks yeah. destroy their own neighborhood if I haven't heard that every time so <sighs> talk, talk talk to us about that
1: yeah so this one this one baffled me and just the other day it just it just something came to me and i was like oh wow that makes lots of sense i was i was in la during the rodney king um incident and the the protests and all the stuff that happened in the neighborhoods and everything it was it was wow it was incredible and this reminded me of that um and the question came up for me again is like why do black people Why do we tear up our own neighborhoods? And then I thought, well, what would it look like if a bunch of Black people jumped on buses and went to white neighborhoods and started setting things on fire and looting and all that kind of stuff? They'd be shot on sight. (laughs) Like, what do you think would really happen? What do you you think the police, what do you think the news would say? What do you think the people in those neighborhoods would say? And how do you think those people would be treated? It would not be the way, they're, they're left alone a lot to tear up their own neighborhoods. Or, and Black people will say, well, we don't own those stores. We don't own those stores. Those, those stores are owned by people who don't live here or people of different race or whatever. So we're, we're not tearing up our stuff. We're tearing up their stuff. Now, those people service those neighborhoods. And you can That's a whole different debate about whether they're taking that money out of the Black community You know, cause dollars don't stay in the black community more than like four hours. Other races keep their money in their community. Some up to like 60 days they'll trade amongst their own race and black money for four to six hours is in our hands and out of the community and given to someone of another race out of that, out of that neighborhood, which is interesting. So.
0: But can I interrupt to say that for me, people are, Giving way too much like frustration and anger is not that logical. It's not that premeditated in that you just have to if you have a little kid, you have to watch a tantrum. It's right. not logical what they do. Yeah. Like they throw all their favorite things at the wall yeah. till it breaks, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. why would one we we videoed it. It was hysterical to watch a kid doing it because it actually is illogical and like frustration and anger like the voice of those rioting to me is, you know, the voice of the unheard and the one, the fresh, the one who wanted attention is never, no one's listening. It's the voice of that.
1: It's, and you know what, this is, there's a whole thing, you know, polyvagal theory and how we go into, um, like vagus nerve, a lot of nerves runs through controls the, you know, the fight flight freeze response. And they did a lot of work with this, um, with women who like rape victims,
0: hmm.
1: you know, people always say, well, how come you don't scream? Or how come you don't fight back or whatever? No, you, you, you can't even access your prefrontal cortex when you are afraid for your life or you feel like you need to fight. You're in your lizard brain and you are you are not thinking. You are either fighting for your survival or you are running for your life or you are freezing like a lizard and hoping the danger will pass. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is a, is a, I had the, you're saying a response. I had a response of anger mm-hmm. and rage and not just because of the Floyd, you know, George Floyd thing is there was three incidents right in a row. One of them in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, where the police burst into a uh, home and killed a young woman in her own home who was an EMT. You know, and and these three things, and it's like black lives don't matter. An ex-police officer, you know, hunting down a young man who's jogging, him and his son and killing him like an animal, mm-hmm. jogging in his own neighborhood. I mean, it's just, and then this whole thing of, you know, filming this man, almost nine minutes, being lynched, strangled in the streets, pleading for his life, calling on his mother. Mm-hmm. Other police officers there are not stopping it. I mean, it's just...
0: And what's the toronto stat that you told me what's the relationship
1: you're you are 20 times more likely to be sh- 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 shot by the police if you are a black person than if you are a white person in toronto
0: what's, your, what's like, your experience Canadians. of that i know you haven't been shot but what's your experience of the police in toronto
1: <sighs> I don't even know how to process the police anymore. I've got, I've got friends who are police and I respect them and what they do. I've worked with the police in you know, training um, in Australia and uh, you know, I've got police officer friends here in Canada. And it's just really, it's, what's really interesting is that when I grew up, my uncle Jay was a police officer in Kentucky and we used to wave at the police officers and they were there to protect us and they were from our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up thinking the police were there to protect you and they were in your neighborhood and they knew you and if you were in, you know, if you're gonna get in some trouble or whatever, they talk you out of it or, you know, give you a warning, whatever. They were really there to serve your neighborhood and then something changed. I don't know if they thought there would be corruption or whatever would happen, but people who don't live in your neighborhood come and police you now. (laughs) They have no connection with you. They don't have any relationship. They didn't grow up and go to school with anybody. They don't have any leverage other than the badge and the gun and the reputation. And so it's interesting because a lot of the police officers that I know are like this this throwback. They serve the community. And as a young man, I actually, I don't do a lot on Facebook, but I shared this, this young man in LA named Tillman. I can't remember his first name. And he did a big thing on, Police officers calling each other out. And um this is this is I'm really happy to see this. And someone said something about, you know, like 90% of the police, 95% of the police are good, and there's only five percent that are bad guys. It's not the 5%. The system supports the 5%. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And now just starting to call it out. Because if you call it out as a police officer, you get blackballed. You you go out, you you're not gonna get support, you're gonna get you might get friendly fire. You might get shot on by your own people. But now I see police officers standing up and saying, no, no, we need to, we need to police ourselves. And that's what I wanna see from police officers. It gives me hope. But my, because I lived in LA through that whole, uh, you know, through the 80s, at 80, 86, you know, all the way through the 97 when I spent most of my time there, 85, 86, that whole, you know, Crip Blood War thing was happening. You know, that was real. I lived at 43rd and Crenshaw when I first moved there. Managed the fat burgers, night manager the fat burgers right there down the street. There was neutron between Crips and blood. That was my welcome to LA, fresh from Kentucky. You know, it was, it was wild. And what I learned in LA was the police are not my friend. <laughs> Number of times I've been pulled over, you know, just on my way home, on my way to lunch, Number of times I saw this young man pulled over back in the 80s, zip tied, hands behind his back, shoes taken off, that was just protocol for running plates back in that day because police officers were getting fired on, gang wars were going crazy. And it just—it was just a time where I learned, if the police are behind me, I'm getting pulled over. Or I should be looking in my mirror, or I should be worried about my driving. not that the feeling I had when I was a kid where it was like, hey, the police are here to protect us. How you doing, officer? And thank you very much for your service. That's been, that's been stuffed down. And it's only the police officers that I know that I know who really serve people or that, that, that little boy in me comes back up. And I'm like, oh, wow, thank you for serving the community like your oath says you should, <laughs> you know. And, um, yeah. So even here in Toronto, my experience is, it's, it's just in me now. I see the police and I'm just thinking, I'm going to get pulled over. Mm-hmm. My, you know, we, um, something happened we were I was taking my son to the skate park so he could do um, some scootering with a buddy of his and something happened in the park across the street and like seven or eight police cars pulled up and they didn't get out of the cars. It might've been deep in the park. And then one of the cars pulled on the other side of the street where we were, we were, and just sit, sit there for a while. And I don't know why. And then my son came up to me and he's like, Dad, those police officers are just sitting there. And I, I think they're staring at you. And I'm like, and I'm trying to ignore them, like, well, son, that's their problem. You know, we're here at the skate park, we're skating. So leave let them have their problems. You guys have fun. And he was saying, Yeah, I'm I'm afraid for you if they're gonna come over and try to do something to you. And I'm like, just go have fun, man. Whatever their problem is, that's their problem.
0: But you saw it.
1: I saw it and I wondered the same thing. I'm like, wow, how'd you come across here.
0: Like, apparently it's even been proven that there's antibodies that just have developed in your body. Your antibodies would be different around that. You're seeing your, you know, you remember how back in the day they used to say that about people Growing up in Rio, they had like a different kind of readiness. Oh yeah, because of their experience. That's how I I imagine this. Yeah, a kind of like alertness. Yeah, and look, Steve. Like I'm very aware that this is an opening of a conversation. Right. With today, I I feel like people have this opening to. What is like one thing I can do? What's the beginning? How can I, so like, what can I be responsible for? Do, do you have anything on your mind that we could help people get in this game to to shift globally the world that we live in? Meaning, you know, from a humanitarian point of view, that feeling of I'm not okay living in a world where black lives don't matter. So what can people do?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing is just, Looking at self and just recognizing where our biases are. Where's your bias? And just confront it. Don't try to hide it. Don't be ashamed of it. We all have them. We all have them. So let's take a good look at them and unpack them. Where did they come from anyway? And and what's really behind that? Are these people really out to hurt me? Or, You know, what's my personal experience of that? And and do I even know any people? You know, maybe I had some bad experiences and now the whole race is this way. And the same thing that, you know, people, people say about the police. Oh, it's 95% of the police are good and it's only 5%. Well, that's every single race, that's every single people. You know, 95% of black people are good. <laughs> and just like 95% of white you know what I mean? It's like there's so many good people in the world and the way that black people have been villainized and stereotyped in the media and movies and all this sort of stuff and the news, you know it's just you would you would think that oh we, we're like the majority of people in the world and we're a minority I mean how many black people are there in Canada? What's the population what's the population of black people in Toronto yet you're 20 times more likely to be shot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know you'd think that we'd be we, this is Atlanta or something there'd be a huge population of black people, you know. And so you see black people all over the place. So the numbers would, would work out based on population, but they don't. Same with imprisonment and everything else. The numbers don't work out. So there's something going on in systemic. So I think the thing that we can do is just examine ourselves and then look at it and then start to educate and, and start to unpack, unpack and, and deconstruct our own biases and hate and prejudices and race, whatever, whatever's going on in us, and just honor it. Honor where it came from. And then make clear decisions about who you want to be to move forward. Mm-hmm. And that's take some education. It's going to take meeting some people that you don't know or doing some research about people that you don't know or things that you don't know and really getting educated. And then the mindset of just really being able to celebrate each other. And this is just a human thing. This is just a human thing. This the same system that, that supports racism, supports poverty, you know, it, it supports uh, keeping the, the political machines operating the way that they operate. It's the idea of keeping a few in power and everyone else in poverty or in conflict and distracted so that the system can perpetuate. And you almost can't blame people who have privilege and power and control things, you almost can't blame them for not giving it up willingly. <laughs> How many of us give up our privilege and our power willingly? You know, we just don't have as much privilege and power that they do. <laughs> so there almost has to be something in it for them to want to give it up. Or the influencers around them have to do something, whether it's their children are the people that are in their environment. It has to be some sort of win in it for them. Like it's just in your best interest to have more humanitarian outlook on life instead of control and superiority.
0: Yeah, because I was gonna say, I think there's sort of these blinder coming out off around, it's a false power, it's an insecure power. That's what control's like, because you can't control everything. There's that moment where you realize it and then sometimes you wanna do it more in, yeah. in fight for it. But ultimately, when you realize that there's something greater, there's a power that's greater than the one you're currently experiencing. I feel like people are really open to that. Like maybe there's something that we don't know. Like we don't know what we don't know. And yeah. in a way, it's never been realized yet. And so it's sort of in that unknown territory, this transformation that we're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean... One thing I want to say is like what you just said about being aware of our own biases, which I've been doing more and more of within myself over these last weeks, is I've really noticed that exposure is huge because mm. in Australia, I'm like, wow, you know, my exposure to people in different races has lessened, you know, And I can see that when I have less exposure, I have more bias. And so sometimes I think, okay, like for myself, that's my secondary. Once I've established, Mm -hmm. ooh, look at that bias. I go to my, I say to myself, I don't even know anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't even know anybody like that. And and that has been the opposite, my experience of other things where I don't have bias. And I I find it hard to kind of fathom other people's biases in that. And so I think exposure is yeah. huge and really seeking it out. Like with a curiosity. Yeah. Like a listening, like I you know, anyway, I could go on and on about that,
1: but well, I guess I'm saying about that cause this yeah. is, this is, this is absolutely huge and working with the program here in Canada, there's all sorts of uh, accountability that we go through with government and different stakeholders and everything else. And one of the, one of the things that I was challenged with being the head coach of the, of the Canadian program was how diverse was my circle of influence Mm. into my decision-making. So were the majority of the people in the same uh, organization? Were they in the same city? Were they in the same province or country?
0: Mm.
1: And so I had to list all of the people who Uh, were the major influencers in my decision making whether they were mentors or Mm. staff or you know so whatever it was and the majority of them were local so we shared the same experience the same environment culture everything My, my decision making wasn't diverse enough or my influences weren't diverse enough so i had to start looking i had to start creating um people to help influence my decision who weren't in the country or weren't part of my organization and it was really interesting just getting that different perspective and how much more creative and innovative our program became because it wasn't just the same thinking you know cool. you, you, That's deep. You, you can't change the the uh you can't solve the problem with the same thinking that created the problem <laughs> you know it's einstein right so you can't you can't do that so here I was using the same thinking to try to create different solutions and it just didn't make any sense. So in your personal life, what is, what's your circle of influence? And the, the people who help you influence your decision-making, when you look at racism, it's, it's very difficult to maintain racism when you have a diverse experience.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, if you have a very, uh, like this you know, small experience of life and one type of thinking in your environment, then yeah, it's very easy to subscribe to whatever is in your environment. So yeah, diversity is huge.
0: That's, I interviewed a woman before um, protests began in the US and her, um, she created a program called Driving Performance Through Diversity. And her whole thing is about mm-hmm. how diversity um, is an expanded worldview. Mm -hmm. And what you just said, I'm getting that that's in the business space. Like where do your decisions come from? What shapes them? What colors them? Mm. And so um, even if it's not from a business perspective or decision-making process, think about it. Like the soup that your kids are growing up in, what is that soup? You know? And I think about Jordan's like bestie Zara. She will love that Mm. she's getting a mention, but she, (laughs) um, Oh, look, they're from a lot of places in the world, but her mom lived a long time in India. And so yes. on a certain day, Zara has her little dot there. And doesn't that then have Jordan wondering about it? There's a whole, she does Bollywood dancing and her mom is so great in our lives. And that's just one example of diversifying the soup.
1: Yeah. And
0: so... um you know, from a kid's perspective, if they catch more than they you know, what's, it gets caught more than it's taught. then that means that we can actually be deliberate and proactive about the different influences and what's around yeah.
1: them. Yeah. yeah, It's okay. a privilege to have access to that diversity because a lot of people, a lot of people don't, a lot of people stay in their the neighborhood they grew up in or the area they, they don't move too far away, right? in a lot of places. Mm. So the diversity, um, it's, it's a, a privilege in a lot of places. In a lot of places, it's a privilege. Steve, yeah.
0: I've loved you my whole life. Don't listen <laughs> Thank you for this conversation. I do feel like it's a beginning. Some of people that know us will laugh because we are known for having much longer than our conversations. It's right. so a breakthrough <laughs> for us. And I will just say till the next time, my friend, thank you so much.
1: Sarah, love to you, Natalie, Jordan, the whole family, you, you are sunshine. Thank you very much. And thanks for having this conversation. This is you know, quiet for way too long. And that's one of the things, I know it's time to go. <laughs> that's one of the things that came out of the march, the black people afterwards, because it, you know, we've just been quiet for too long, just making a living, getting through the day, taking care of our families, hoping that things would, would the right thing would happen somehow. And Black people now having a voice and saying, no, I can no longer be quiet and just look at my life. This is, and it's about our family trees now. It's about our children and what soup are we creating. Can't keep just cre- keep creating the same soup and hoping. So thank you very much for providing this space and, and asking me to do this, because I've been quiet for too long. And uh, I won't be quiet anymore, so thank you. Well said. We so
0: appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In the Game Podcast. There you can download your three step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on Five stars, five stars, five stars, and then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.